the Lord be with you. <laughs> Let us pray. O God, the Father of all mankind, we beseech Thee to inspire us with such love, truth, and equity that in all our dealings with one another we may show forth our brotherhood in Thee. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, you want to open them today to Ephesians chapter 6. And we are going to look at verses 5 through 9 today. So if you have your Bibles or if you want to log on, please feel free to do so. And let's go ahead and read through these verses and then we'll come back and take a look at them. Paul writes, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Uh, We said that uh, Paul, in this epistle, deals with our relationship with Jesus Christ, and by consequence, that has implications for our relationships with everybody else. And Paul gives us three examples of how that relationship with Christ impacts our relationships with others. He deals, first of all, we said with the marriage relationship, the relationship between husbands and wives. And Paul deals with that in the greatest detail for the obvious reason it is the first of the human institutions and it is therefore foundational. And so Paul deals with that in great detail. But then he goes on to deal with the relationship between parents and their children. And he grounds that in the natural law. He says, children, obey your parents for this is right. Now, both of those relationships, the relationship between husbands and wives and the relationship between parents and children, they do have elements of controversy in them, particularly in our day and age. Uh, We said that we're living in a culture in which marriage is fast declining, it seems, in many parts of the world, even here in Western world. And this whole notion of submission is not a very popular notion in our world Today, So we said that there are elements to what Paul says there that are controversial for us today. Not difficult um, for him, but difficult for us. Paul then goes on to talk about the relationship between parents and their children. And we said this too is controversial. Because Paul makes it very clear, children have an obligation to their parents. And that obligation is to not only obey their parents, but to respect their parents. And that is a very difficult thing to do when you're living in a narcissistic age. When they are taught, we are taught to believe that it's really all about me. And yet when we put those relationships in their proper context, what Paul is saying is that this is a picture really of what? This is a picture of the Christian life. This is a picture of how you and I submit to Jesus Christ. Husbands are to submit to their their Lord, to, to Jesus Christ. Wives, therefore, submit to their husbands. Children are to submit to their parents. And all of this, he says, is a picture of submission to the Lord himself, who is master of all. But now he comes to this third example. And I have to say that this is perhaps the most controversial of all the relationships. 
It's been controversial since the time, I think, that the Apostle Paul wrote it. And part of the problem is that this whole issue of slavery is a very delicate and controversial subject. All you have to do is take a look at what happened a year and a half ago in Charlottesville, Virginia, to understand just how controversial and dangerous a discussion on this subject can be. And yet here is something that the Apostle Paul says. In fact, Paul's words here in Ephesians have been used in the past to actually support the institution of slavery. The first two relationships that he talks about are relationships that are ongoing. The relationship between husbands and wives is an ongoing institution. Paul makes it very clear. Where marriage goes, society goes. And he's very clear that the obedience that children owe to their parents that is ongoing. That's not just for a particular age. And so you might very well ask the question, well, is Paul suggesting that the same thing is true in terms of this third relationship, the institution of slavery? Because many people said, yes, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying. And they used Paul's words actually to advance and enforce this idea that bondage, human bondage, is acceptable and it's part of God's plan for the created order. Is that the case? Well, obviously, uh, I don't believe that that is the case. But in order to understand what Paul is saying and to put these things in their proper context, it's important to understand a little bit of history. That was true when we dealt with the relationship between husbands and wives and children and parents, and it's also true when it comes to this institution of slavery. <laughs> First of all, you need to recognize that slavery was very much a part of first century life. Now, there's nobody in this room who actually experienced the institution of slavery. Now, you may have had family members who were affected by the institution of slavery, but nobody in this room ever experienced it or saw it in action. That was not true for somebody living in the first century. In fact, it's been estimated that nearly 60 million people in the Roman Empire were slaves at the time that the Apostle Paul wrote this epistle to the Ephesians. Now that's fast approaching 50% of the population, which tells us that when the Apostle Paul was living and moving about, nearly half of the population was enslaved to the other half of the population. So slavery was something that Paul was very much familiar with. Furthermore, there were at least three ways that a person could become a slave, and it wasn't always on racial lines, incidentally. You could become a slave, first of all, by birth. That is to say, if your parents were born slaves, then you were automatically a slave. You were just born into it, and you really had no way of getting out of it. You could also become a slave by conquest, and this is oftentimes the way it happened in the ancient world. If your people or your nation happened to be conquered by another nation, then you automatically became vassals or slaves of that conquering nation. For all intents and purposes, that's really what the Jews were in the first century. They were slaves, if you will, of the Roman Empire. And the third way that you could become a slave, and this seems bizarre to us, but you could become a slave by indebtedness. That is to say, if you had great debt and you could not repay your debts, then you automatically became a slave to the one to whom you owned a debt. Now, that's not the case today. If you have debt today, you file for bankruptcy and it ruins your credit rating perhaps for seven years, but then you sort of recover from that. People make this a common practice over and over and over again in our culture. 
Well, that was not the case in the ancient world. If you were in debt and you could not repay your debts, that was a serious offense. It wasn't so long ago that we actually had debtor prisons. People became indentured servants. So that sort of thing happened here even in North America and in Britain and other parts of the world. Well, it certainly happened in the ancient world. So many people were slaves in the ancient world. And Paul addresses this whole issue of slavery here. And people have been troubled by the fact that he doesn't condemn it. And you need to say right off the bat, Paul does not right here in this epistle to the Ephesians condemn the institution of slavery. But it is very important to note, nor does he condone it. Paul does not anywhere in this passage condone the institution of slavery. In fact, he treats it in a completely different way than the way, even though he lumps it together in those other two relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, he deals with it in a very, almost radically different way. For example, he says, wives are submit to their husbands, and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Why? He says, because this is not just about a man and a woman. This is a picture of what? Christ's relationship to his church. In fact, Paul goes to great lengths to say that this was an institution that God established at the moment of creation. It was woven into the fabric of creation. And it is a picture of Christ's relationship to his church. That's why the marriage relationship is sacrosanct. It's, it's for that reason. The same is true when he deals with the relationship between parents and children. What does he say? He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. Why? Because this is right. Paul doesn't even appeal to any biblical standard. Paul simply establishes the fact that this is something that God declared at the moment of creation. As I said, it is woven into the natural law. Every society recognizes that children are expected to be obedient and respectful toward their parents. If you don't, you have what? You have chaos. But when Paul says, slaves, be obedient to your masters, he doesn't say this is because this is what Christ wanted. He doesn't say this is because this was established at the moment of creation. He simply says this is what we should do. So Paul treats this institution in a very different way. Furthermore, Paul not only speaks of the responsibility of slaves to their masters, but he also does something very unique here. He speaks of the relationship and the responsibility that masters have to their slaves. Look at how he puts it here. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. But then he goes on in verse 9 to say, Masters do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Paul says a number of things there that are quite significant. First of all, he says there's no partiality with God. There may be partiality with men, but there's no partiality with God. And furthermore, he says, masters, you are to treat your slaves the way that your slaves would have them be treated. Now, that is revolutionary. We have a hard time understanding how revolutionary. In fact, I would go so far as to say, rather than supporting the institution of slavery, what Paul says here in Ephesians actually contributed to its eventual demise. 
Because this is a very different way of looking at the institution compared to the way people in Paul's day actually looked at it. In Paul's day, slaves were not people. They were objects. And they were objects to be used, to be utilized. And when they were no longer profitable or necessary, they were to be cast out. I'll just give you a couple of quotes from the ancient world. This one comes from Aristotle, who is probably regarded as the greatest thinker of the Greek world. And here's what Aristotle had to say about human slaves. He said, slaves and masters can never be friends, for a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. In other words, according to Aristotle, a human slave is nothing more than a what? Something like a hammer or a spade. It's something that is used to achieve a purpose, but there's no personal attachment to it. Well, that's a radically different way of looking at a slave than the way the Apostle Paul presents it to us here in Ephesians chapter 6. Somebody who is endowed with a degree of dignity is to be treated as such. Here's what... Marcus Terentius Varro, a famous Roman scholar and writer, said 116 B.C. to 27 B.C. So this is just about the time that Jesus was appearing on the scene. He said there are three classes of agricultural instruments. Remember, this was an agrarian culture. This was before the Industrial Age. So most people made their living by farming the land. And this is what he said. He said there are three classes of agricultural instruments. The articulate class comprises the slaves. The inarticulate, the cattle, and the mute, the vehicles. A slave is but an animal that happens to talk. Well, that's how people regarded other people in the ancient world. And this is Marcus Portius Cato, Roman senator. He said, upon the purchase of a farm, a man must rid himself of all that is no longer useful. Old slaves, too, must be thrown out on the scrap heap to starve. When slaves are ill, it is sheer extravagance to issue them with normal rations. Now, if you don't see a difference between the way that those people in the ancient world looked at slaves and talked about slaves and regarded slaves and the way that the Apostle Paul looks at slaves, talks about slaves and regards slaves, then you really don't understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here. It is clear Paul is dealing with this institution in a very different way. And if you really want to know how Paul felt about slavery, really felt about slavery, we need to take a look at the letter that he wrote to Philemon. It's the shortest of Paul's letters. You can find it in the New Testament. It's only one chapter. It's just one letter, just a very brief letter. And the circumstances are very different from every other letter that Paul ever wrote. Most of the time when Paul wrote his epistles, he was writing to churches, wasn't he? He was writing to churches, sometimes to individuals. When he wrote, for example, First and Second Timothy, he was writing to an individual. He's passing on the baton, as it were. Paul was imprisoned in Rome. He knew that his time was coming to an end. He was passing on the mantle of leadership to Timothy. But most of the time, aside from that, Paul was writing letters to churches, to communities that he had helped to establish, the churches in Galatia or Ephesus or Philippians. But on this occasion, Paul was writing to an individual to a man named Philemon. And it's helpful to understand the background here. 
Philemon was a wealthy, slave-holding Christian who lived in Colossae. When Paul went through Ephesus, Ephesus is about 100 miles from Colossae, when Paul went through Ephesus, evidently Philemon went and heard Paul preach, and he was converted through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. His life was radically changed, and he and Paul, as a consequence, became friends. Now, years later, this is years later, Paul is imprisoned in Rome at the time that he writes this particular letter to Philemon. But he's kept up with Philemon. He's continued the relationship. Paul was a great letter writer, and he maintained those relationships. We're told that one of Philemon's slaves, a man by the name of Onesimus, had run away. He longed for freedom, and he escaped his master's control, and he ran off and he fled to Rome. Now, it's obvious why he went to Rome. Because I said that slavery did not necessarily exist on racial lines in those days. So he went to Rome because Rome was this enormous capital of the empire, and he felt that perhaps he could sort of blend in with society, and nobody would know that he had actually been a slave. So that's why he goes to Rome. And in the great economy of God's salvation, you know, God is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations, and this is a remarkable story. But while he's in Rome, in this great capital, trying to sort of say, under the radar, lo and behold, he comes into contact with the Apostle Paul. The same Paul that his master had come into contact with years before in a completely different city. But Onesimus comes into contact with the Apostle Paul. He too hears Paul's preaching, and he too is converted to the Christian faith. And he becomes a devoted follower of Paul. And because Paul is imprisoned, Onesimus comes and he visits him and he takes care of him and he runs errands for Paul and no doubt was perhaps even distributing some of the letters that Paul was writing while he was in Rome to these churches. And so Onesimus became invaluable to Paul. But Paul knew the law and of course he had a relationship with Philemon and so he persuades Onesimus to go back to go back to his master. And when Paul sends Onesimus, whom he loves, back to Philemon, he sends the letter that we have in the New Testament along with it. And here's what Paul says in Philemon. It says 12 through 16, because I said there's only one chapter. So Philemon 12 through 16, this is what Paul says to this slave owner. He said, I'm sending him back to you. Sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. And here comes the critical phrase, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. You see, when you become a Christian, you become part of a family, don't you? God is your father, Christ is your brother, and all these other Christians are what? Family. They are your kin, your spiritual kin, your forever family. And so Paul is saying, this, bro, this man is your brother. He may have been your slave, but he is your brother now. I'm sending him back to you because I understand the law, but I'm inviting you to receive him no longer as what? A servant, but as a what? As a brother. How can you enslave 
your brother. See, that's a radically different approach to the social system than what you find in the ancient world elsewhere. Now, of course, this prompts a question in our mind. Well, if, if that's the way Paul felt about things, then why was it that Paul never called for radical emancipation? I mean, slavery was this blight upon the land. My goodness, half of the population enslaved to the other half of the population. If that's really how Paul felt about the institution of slavery, why didn't he do something about it? Why didn't he call immediately for a social revolution? Well, it's interesting to note, Jesus was very much familiar with slavery in his world as well. It was in Jerusalem as much as it was in Rome and Ephesus and Colossae and other places. And Jesus never called for a social revolution on this issue either. Why? I think it's because Jesus and Paul both understood that you cannot legislate morality. Now, we try, don't we? We try very hard because we are, of course, a nation of laws and lawgivers. We live in a litigious society, and we think that laws, if you just pass the right laws, you can change society. But Paul and Jesus knew that is not how you actually do it. Jesus says, if you want to know what the problem is, the problem is not out there in the world. The problem is not out there in society. In, Matthew, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, the problem is within. He said, it's, it's not what comes into a man that corrupts him. It's what comes out of a man. Now, that's what we think. We think that we're corrupt and wicked and evil people and corrupt and evil and wicked things are done by people. Why? Because of the culture. They're influenced by the culture. They're influenced by the society. And Jesus said that is the exact opposite. The reason why the culture is corrupt is because it what? It contains corrupt, broken, sinful, and wicked human beings. That is the real problem. And Jesus says we need to diagnose the problem correctly if we're ever going to apply the correct cure. In other words, what is required is not a change of law. What is required is a change of of heart. And once you change a person's heart, let me tell you something, my friends. Their behavior, their attitude, their pocketbook, it all comes along as a consequence. Change the law, and they may do it, but they'll do it grudgingly, and furthermore, they'll do everything in their power to change. To change of heart that is Required. I think you can recognize this in terms of our own nation's history. I think most of you know that on January the 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect. Lincoln had actually signed it earlier in the year, a preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, but it went into full effect in January of 1863, freeing all those slaves in those areas still in rebellion against the United States. Now, some people have been critical and said, well, Lincoln didn't free any of the slaves in the North, and there were some. That is true, but you have to understand American history. Lincoln didn't have the power to free slaves in the North. He acted under his war powers as the commander-in-chief. It would take a constitutional amendment in order to abolish slavery everywhere in North America. And that's what we got in the 13th Amendment. We eventually got a change. But many people have argued, but Lincoln's heart wasn't in it anyway. He used this then simply as a war measure because he never really believed in the equality of the races. In fact, some people have pointed out that Lincoln was an early advocate 
of colonization. And it is true. There was a colonization society that existed in the United States in the mid-19th century, and actually in 1862 there was a grand attempt by the federal government to take freed slaves and get them out of the country and colonize them on the west coast of Africa. The Republic of Liberia, if you don't know its history, the Republic of Liberia came into existence because it was a colony for freed slaves, American slaves. That's why its official language is English to this very day. Those were free slaves who were sent back to Africa to be colonized. Now the reason why the colonization effort never took hold was because many of these slaves had lived in America for generations. And they regarded this as their home, not Africa as their home anymore. That was actually as foreign to them as some of you who came from Germany or your ancestors came from Germany or from France or other places is foreign to you. So they didn't want to go back, and so the colonization efforts ended. But that's not the real reason. If you actually read Lincoln's own writings, one of the things you quickly discover is that that is not the reason Lincoln advocated for colonization. Lincoln advocated for colonization because Lincoln believed that if he freed the slaves, or if the slaves were freed by judicial fiat or legislative fiat, it wasn't going to change the way people thought about them. See, you, you could change their legal status, but you could not change prejudice. Prejudice that existed, by the way, not just in the American South, but all over this country, especially in the 19th century. And as it turns out, Lincoln was prophetic in that. He did free the slaves in 1863, and in 1865, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution was passed. Slavery came to an end legally. But did our racial problems come to an end? It's interesting to note, 100 years later, in the 1960s, we were still dealing with the same problems. The legal status had changed, but people's attitudes had only hardened. That's why Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says that's when hearts begin to change, when people begin to realize that it's not a matter of legislating morality, it's a matter of the gospel coming in and softening hearts and changing minds and transforming people. That's how real change comes, my friend. Now, that being the case, the next question to ask is, okay, that's how Paul really felt about it. That's how he felt social change really came, by a changing of the heart, a changing of the mind, not by simply passing laws. But then, does this section of Ephesians have any application for us? Or is this just a message for people? We, we recognize that slavery is now a thing of the past, at least here. Incidentally, slavery is still very much alive in some parts of the world. It's unfortunate. But here, it's not in action, and so we wonder to ourselves, well then, do Paul's words have application for us today? One of the things you have to remember about the Bible is that what the biblical authors are really laying down for us are principles. Principles that, while they may not address specifically our situation, nevertheless do apply in a general sort of way to us. And that's one of the reasons why I began this class with a collect for honorable industry for honorable work. Because what Paul says about slaves and masters and masters and slaves 
may not apply in a specific way to us, but it does apply in a general way to us. It applies to employers and employees. And I think that's really what Paul is getting at. So let's go ahead and apply the principles that Paul uses here in Ephesians chapter 6 to the relationship that employers have to employees and employees have to employers. First thing Paul is talking about is submission. That's what this whole section is about. It's about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what he says in chapter 5, verse 21. That is sort of the topic sentence. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, we have a problem with that word submission. We don't want to submit to anybody. We want to be the captain. We want to be in charge. We want to be the king. But what did Jesus do at the Last Supper? He got down on his hands and his feet, and he washed the feet of the disciples. And he said, he who would be great in the kingdom of God must be last. He who would be great must be what? The servant of all. Let me tell you something. If you do not understand that, you really don't understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I think that's one of the problems, because we are taught that it's all about me. And Jesus says, actually, it's all about the other person. When I was a little boy, I was taught in Sunday school that the way you should look at other people and the way you should look at the world is this way, Jesus, others, and you. And oftentimes, it's the exact opposite, isn't it? We take that and we turn it upside down. It's me, it's others, and it's Jesus. (laughs) The way the Apostle Paul presents it to us is Jesus, and then concern for others, and last of all, concern for ourselves. That is the Christian way. Is that a painful way? Yes. Is it a costly way? Yes. But it is the way of Jesus Christ. It is the pattern and the example that he himself set for us. It is an attitude of servanthood. In fact, it's interesting the way the Apostle Paul describes it in Philippians. He describes Christ as having had the very best, but giving it all up and becoming, and the word that he uses there is servant, doulos, but the Greek literally means bond servant, slave. Christ became a slave. Even though he was the master, he became a slave. And in so doing, set us an example of how we are to be servants of one another. So this whole section is about submission. So what does he say? Well, he starts with employees. We apply this. What is the duty of employees if they are to submit? Well, the first duty of employees is obedience. They are to be obedient to those in authority over them. Now, it is true, Paul says, masters do the same to them. But, of course, he's not saying that masters ought to be serving their servants because that just turns the whole thing on its head. But what he is saying is that, look, you have an obligation to your employer to give obedience, to do your job, to assume that your boss knows best. Give him or give her the benefit of the doubt. It may be that you think that you're wiser than your boss, but the reality is, who's employing who here? So the first thing Paul says is obedience. Now, of course, it's not a blind obedience. If your boss is asking you to do something illegal or immoral or unethical, then you have an obligation, a higher obligation to Christ. But if that is not the case, you owe it to your boss what? to give them obedience, to follow their instructions, to fulfill their requests. Second thing you are expected to give is respect. The word respect here is very similar to what Paul says 
when he talks about children. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. But then he goes on to say in verse 2, honor your father and your mother. If you're employed and there is a supervisor over you, you owe them your obedience. You owe them your respect. That is to say, your loyalty. And finally, Paul says, you are to do this with a sincere heart. He says, with a sincere heart as you would serve Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. With sincerity. You are to do your work sincerely, not begrudgingly, but sincerely. The the word there is interesting. Um, It comes from two Latin words, sine sera. And I think I've explained this in here before. The word literally means without wax. That's what the word the phrase means sine sera, without wax. It comes from the pottery industry. In the ancient world, uh, pottery was big business. Everybody used pottery, of course. But every now and then when you put the pottery in the kiln, it would crack. It would get these hairline cracks. And it should be thrown out because obviously if you're using it for liquid, particularly hot liquid, it's going to fall apart. But some dishonest pottery makers discovered that if you took wax and sort of rubbed it into those cracks and those fissures and painted over it, nobody could tell the difference. And so they would sell their pottery, somebody would take it home, put something hot in it, and what would happen? The wax would melt and the pottery would fall apart. And so they began stamping the bottom of pottery in the ancient world with those two words. Sine sera, without wax. It's real, it's genuine, it's trustworthy. You've all heard the expression, when the cat's away, the mice will play. That's what Paul is talking about. He says, if you are a worker, if you are working for someone, if you are a Christian, now Paul, of course, you can't apply this to people that are not Christians, but if we are Christians, Paul says, what we owe to those who supervise us is obedience, respect, loyalty, and sincere work. Paul would say we are to do it wholeheartedly. This is what used to be called honest labor honest labor. So, obedience, respect, sincerity, loyalty, and finally he says good will. The NIV translates that as wholeheartedness, we already mentioned it, cheerfulness, but as I said it really means good will, heart, and soul. Now what is interesting is the way Paul rounds out the obligations of employees. He says do this Do it wholeheartedly, do it sincerely, knowing that you will receive back from the Lord the due reward. Paul has no trouble talking about the fact that there is an incentive in doing our work. We are doing this, first of all, as unto the Lord, but one day we will be rewarded for it. We may not be rewarded for it in this life. You may not get that raise or that bonus at the end of the year, even though you deserve it. But what you can know is that there is one who sees and who will reward in secret. And that is God himself. Uh, This is one of the reasons why I think, I've got to be very careful here, 
But this is one of the reasons why I think capitalism as a system is much better than communism. Because capitalism believes that the worker has a right to that which is produced. Communism says no. Communism says it all belongs to the collective. No, but capitalism says that if you work hard, you deserve to be what? Rewarded. That's why I think some profit-sharing schemes are very important, and I think they're much more in line with what the biblical witness is than you might find in communism or even in socialism. Now, I've got to be careful here because, as one person has said, we, we cannot baptize any political system. We have to remember that ultimately we are servants of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we are citizens of His kingdom. I'm just simply saying that I think that this system is more in line with what you find biblically than elsewhere. Now, having dealt with the responsibility of workers, Paul then goes on to deal with the duties of employers. He says this, he says, employers are to do the same to them. That is to say, if they're going to work sincerely, honestly, wholeheartedly, then employers owe it to their workers to be sincere, to be wholehearted, and to be generous. There can only be one boss, of course, but a boss can act in any number of ways. He can be a good boss or he can be a bad boss. What's the golden rule? Do unto others as, as you would have them do unto you. Not do unto others before they do unto you, but do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying... Now, yes, it is true, workers have a responsibility to those who are their supervisors or their employers, but employers have an obligation to their workers to do unto them as they would have done unto them. R.C. Sproul wrote a book some years ago called In Search of Dignity. R.C. Sproul is a Reformed theologian, recently passed on to glory, but he tells a story that I think is very helpful. He lived and worked for most of his life uh, in western Pennsylvania. He had a ministry there, Ligonier Ministries. And uh, while he was there, he oftentimes would get involved in labor disputes, particularly in the steel industry. And uh, he would teach principles about leadership and the things that needed to be done. And he noticed that when he went into the factories and the steel mills, that there was a phrase that workers would sometimes use that he really didn't understand. The workers would say, when the supervisor comes in, he drops the head. Now, nobody really knew what, Sproul didn't know what they meant by that, and he never really asked. But one day, it was, he was just puzzling over, what does that mean? Particularly when he's writing one of his books, he said, what does that mean to drop the head? And he was sitting in a hospital in Pittsburgh, and he was waiting to be seen and uh, as he was sitting there, he watched the reactions of people as they were working in the hospital. And he said he noticed that when a doctor came onto the floor, immediately the nurses brightened. And, and they became industrious, and they became helpful, and they wanted to do whatever the doctor wanted them to do. And he said, that taught me immediately that there is a pyramid structure, there is a hierarchy in the medical profession, and doctors are at the top. <laughs> he said, but what was interesting 
was that shortly thereafter, he saw one of these nurses that had brightened when the doctor came onto the floor, walking down the hallway. She was going on an errand. She was walking rather briskly. And coming toward her was a man pushing a cart filled with soiled laundry. And the minute that he saw the nurse walking toward him, he brightened. His head came up. He smiled. But the minute she got to him, her head dropped. And she looked at the floor, and she went right on by. And Sproul said, I looked at that man's face, and all of a sudden, he just became downcast. His shoulders slumped. He continued to push the cart, but at a much slower rate. What was he looking for? He was looking for recognition. He was looking to be noticed, to be valued. And he wasn't, and when he wasn't, he slumped. See, if you believe that every human being is endowed by their Creator with a degree of dignity, that's what we say in the baptismal covenant, isn't it? Will you respect the dignity of what? Every human being. That's what an employer owes to the employees. These people are not just tools. They are people made in Christ's image. And we are to treat them with what? Dignity and with respect. One of my favorite memories of President George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush who recently died. and We all saw his funeral and what a remarkable man he was, such a gentle, gentle spirit. But I remember when he first became President, taking over from Ronald Reagan, he was going to Britain for a state visit. And I remember watching this on the news, even as a young man, watching this on the news and seeing the President arrive, and he was at 10 Downing Street. You know, all the newspaper reporters are there, and they're flashing, they're flashing, and they're flashing. And as the president got out of the limo and began to walk into 10 Downing Street, he suddenly stopped and shook the hand of the doorman and then proceeded in. Now, the newspapers are going to report on this visit. But you know the thing that they plastered more than anything else across the headlines was the fact that the president of the United States stopped and shook the hand of a doorman. No head of state had ever done that. And it's interesting, the British looked at it as sort of typical American. <laughs> but you see what the president was doing? He was showing dignity. What do you think that doorman went home and said to his wife and his children that night? The leader of the free world stopped and took note of me. Do you know what a difference that makes in a person's life? Yeah, employees owe their employers hard work, industrious labor, honesty. But those of you who are in positions of authority, you owe it to those people to treat them with respect and dignity, the same kind of respect and dignity that you receive from Jesus Christ. How does real social change come? It comes, my friends, only through the proclamation of the Christian gospel. You can pass all the laws you want, but only the Christian gospel has the ability to change people's hearts. It comes when you recognize another person as having worth, when you recognize that another person has been made in the image of God, when you recognize that what that person does, whether it's important in the eyes of the world or unimportant in the eyes of the world, it 
matters to God. Ultimately, that's what brought the end of slavery. And ultimately, my friends, that's the only thing that will bring an end to bigotry, hatred, and prejudice. I'm going to give you a recipe. For those of you who like to have things diagrammed, we're going to diagram it out for you, how real social change comes. And the only way. Because if we as Christians don't recognize this, what hope is there for the world? If you think our government is a mess now, what's the remedy? The remedy is the Christian gospel. Always was, always will be. Here's how real social change comes. When you recognize that your theology influences your philosophy. And your philosophy influences your ethics. And your ethics influence how you treat other people. And how you treat other people is what ultimately produces change. Let me just flesh that out for just a moment. Your theology. What is theology? It's the study of God, the science of God. Biology is the study of life. Ology, bio. Theology is the study of God. Your view of God, how you see God. If you're an atheist, you don't think there's a God. That's going to influence your worldview. If you think the world is meaningless and it's just here for your entertainment, then that's going to influence the way you treat other people and look at other people. But if you are a Christian then your view of God as a loving, compassionate, merciful, long-suffering God is going to influence your philosophy. What is your philosophy? Your worldview. The way you look at life. And the way you look at life, your philosophy, will influence your ethics. What you believe is right, what is wrong, what is acceptable, and what is unacceptable. And your ethics will inform the way you treat other people. And the way you treat other people, soul by soul, individual by individual, ultimately change society. So as Christians, what is your view of God? You believe that He is a God that created us all in His image, having infinite value, infinite worth, then that will influence the way you look at the world. Are people just cogs in a machine, tools to be used? You see this world in need of redemption and you have a heart for it and as a consequence you treat people with the dignity and the respect that they deserve and you have a desire to share the gospel with them because they are perishing. And if you approach them that way, if you treat them with the dignity, not dropping the head, but being there with them as a good neighbor, Lo and behold, you will discover that change does come to your community, to your state, to your country, and to the world. That's how you change things. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for these words from the Apostle Paul. They take us in a direction perhaps we had not anticipated going. They are powerful words to us today. They are the words that brought a pagan, oppressive empire to its knees. Grant that they may do the same for us today. For Jesus' sake. Amen.